0: Hey everybody, this is the first episode of the tax Sherpa stories. I was about to say the monster maverick show, which is, which is my other show on discord, that's a weekly streaming live Q and a kind of thing, but this is tax Sherpa stories. So on this first show, I want to go over a couple, a couple of things, basically what the show is about the whole structure of it. And then we'll get into the actual meat of the episode. So basically this is going to be stories from the front lines of the tax world. Things I've learned from doing, oh, 50,000 tax returns or so over the past decade and current events, things going on in the financial and tax world, you know, ways to run your business better. You know, I'm a private first professional. That's a big part of what I do to help clients and other topical things in the world of tax finance markets and all those kinds of things. So that's kind of what the show is going to be about. And if that's your bag, if you're an entrepreneur, if you are into keeping your money, not paying it to the government. Or, you know, operating your business in a more profitable way and just lowering your overall financial stress, then this is your place. So that's kind of uh, what it's about now. Who am I? Why should you listen to anything I have to say? <laughs> Obviously an important question. And basically I, well, my name's Neil Neil I am the principal over at tax Sherpa. That's tax And I've been in the tax world for, like I said, about a decade. And I got into it the old fashioned way. I married into it. (laughs) And that'll that's actually a big part of my story about how I came into the tax world. So I was trained as an engineer, went to Georgia tech. I was a bachelor of electrical engineering with an emphasis in bioengineering. This was before BME biomedical engineering was its own separate major. And you know, I did, did my undergrad there, did some graduate work, ended up not finishing there. And then I went out into the world and I found out really quickly that the corporate world was not for me. I, I, I actually have a whole separate story about the instant. I realized that I did not want to work in the corporate world, especially as an engineer, so then I was doing other things, you know, I've been in the investment markets for, for about 20 years, really since I was an intern in college, and that's going to play a part in, in my story today about how I owed the IRS over a million dollars at one point and how I paid none of it (laughs) and, and legally so. So, so there, (laughs) but I don't want to, I don't want to spoil the surprise there, but you know, I ended up going through a very old school kind of apprenticeship under a tax attorney and uh, you know, spent many years there and kind of learned the ins and outs of, of the tax code and you know, how it applies to your average kind of small business owner. If there is such a thing as an average. But the thing that turned out to be really interesting is that, so my background as you know, training as an engineer, allowed me to come to the tax world from a, a very different perspective compared to most accountants, most accountants they major in accounting and they have this kind of very basic fluency in, in numbers and a little bit of understanding of the law. And what I came, when I came in as an engineer though, you know, engineering is all about like systems level analysis. So by looking at things in that way, it has allowed me to, to, I think, see very readily what kinds of things are, are applicable and how one, one piece affects another very quickly. And that's kind of a unique perspective. I think I bring to the whole thing on top of that, you know, at one point I had my series 65 investment advisor. So I ended up not doing that, which is again, a whole other story unto itself. But yeah, so I, I do at least formally had had those credentials, which may or may not place any weight on, you know, my take on the markets and things on top of that, you know, I I'm what's called a profit first professional, which means that I help businesses structure their cash flows. And the goal is to end entrepreneurial poverty. Thanks honey for turning off those with hooks. <laughs> I appreciate it. So, you know, entrepreneurial poverty is kind of a weird term yeah, because you know, the typical I guess, pop culture idea of an entrepreneur, is somebody who's rich and who wants their own business. But the dirty little secret is that the, the average entrepreneur is flat broke because the way that businesses are run for the most part is that, you know, money comes in, you know, in revenue and hopefully there's some revenue kind of there, a lot of businesses fail at that step, but then right after revenue comes expenses. And you know, whatever's left over is profit, that's the typical accounting formula, you know, profit minus our revenue minus expenses equals profit. So the way profit first looks at that is that that is not a, a sufficient way to run your business because what ends up happening. And I've experienced this myself is that money comes in, money goes out. And then there's nothing left. So there's so many entrepreneurs out there who have their own small businesses, whether it's just them or whether it's, or whether they have a team or, you know, any, any situation doesn't really matter because they put themselves last, then they get nothing and either they barely eke by, or they end up going into debt in order to support the business. And what profit first does is it turns that all around. So I'm sure that you've heard the old expression that, you know, you pay yourself first, you know, richest man in Babylon was written, I don't know, a hundred years ago, 120 years ago, something like that. And it says, pay yourself first. And they say, let it not be less than a 10th of all you make. So profit first just pays yourself first. And there's, there's a whole structure to how you do it, but that's the basic idea. So, you know, when it comes in, you pay yourself and you run your business on whatever's left. And so that allows you to actually. You know, live and (laughs) it allows the business to continue. And you know, there are certain decisions that need to be made along that, along that journey, but that will get you at least to step one, uh, which is kind of the most important part. So that's, that's a little bit about who I am. So I've been in, in the world of money and finance and markets for roughly 20 years, uh, tax world specifically for 10 years done as it turned out, the the mentorship I went through was actually a very high-volume kind of place. So, you know, the the fifty thousand tax returns I've done is is way far above the norm. So I'd go to these conferences, you know, with the IRS, and you know, we talked to you know other taxpayers who were there, it's a continuing education kind of series that that the IRS puts on every year, and say, oh, you know, what's what's your business like? And they would say, it's like, oh, you know, we have two hundred clients, or three hundred clients, or sixty-five clients, or whatever. It's like, oh, we do eight thousand, you know, <laughs> so it's. So, kind of a different scale of things. So that has really, you know, just through, just through the sheer of volume has, has really built up my experience in that way. So the way that this show is going to work is that there's going to be two basic segments. So segment number one is going to be the story time. So we actually have two stories on tap for today. So story number one is going to be the time I owe the IRS a million dollars. And then how I didn't pay any of it. <laughs> and story <laughs> segment number two is the Q and A. So this is a live show. We're on Discord here. People could be watching on on mspwaves.com, or they could be watching on VIM. I think we're still on Theta. I'm not sure about that. But the Q and A portion is here in Discord. So you know people can type in the chat and and say whatever they want. And in the in the, in the view on the, on the live stream, which you can't see right now. You, you will see in the bottom right-hand corner, there is a, a window of the stream of, of the, of the discord channel as it's, as it's happening. So, so you can ask any questions you want. I do recommend not, well, I can't give you any, any particular answers to, to you, to your situation simply because you know, we don't have an existing. Our relationship I'm, you know, not with very few exceptions. I'm not, uh, your tax preparer, and also this is a public forum. So, you know, I want to put your details out into the, uh, into the uh, YouTube and podcast world like that. So <laughs> we will stick to generalities and how certain kinds of things would be done. That sort of thing. And, uh, that part may or may not be recorded depending on the topics that we dive into and, and how much people ignore my suggestion. I'm not getting too in detail about their personal situation. So if you have a question and you want me to, to definitely not record it, just let me know. And then I can stop the recording and then we can talk about it live, but you know, it won't make it into the, uh, the YouTube and the podcast stuff. So that's kind of the structure. And uh, if that sounds exciting to you, then let's dive in. So part number one story time. (laughs) So the time I owed the IRS a million dollars. So what happened was, you know, I was. I was younger. This was around 2003. It was kind of a saga stretching from 2003 to 2008. And what had happened was, so I had mentioned that I didn't want a corporate job and I found this out fairly early, uh, in my career, really, as I was a senior in, in my degree program, I interned with AMD and, you know, advanced micro devices their uh, their Texas campus. And through that experience, I realized eh, this is not what I want to do course, it's kind of late. You know, this is my fourth year of, of college here, and so that was kind of a, a shot to the gut. But after graduation, I started looking at, at other things. I started doing other things. I started getting more involved in investing and the markets. You know, investing is a loose term; trading. Uh, let's let's say that. So, through no no credit to myself, I ended up with a stockpile of about a hundred grand, and I put it all into investment or trading uh, accounts, you know, this was in the very early days of electronic trading. So E-Trade was a thing. Ameritrade was a thing. I don't think they had merged with TD yet. And there were a couple other, other platforms uh, that were being in use for, for people who were day trading, which is what I ended up doing. So it was an interesting experience. I lasted about two years and I, if you've ever thought about day trading, whether it be, you know, stocks or, or crypto or, or anything, I'd say, don't it's terrible, terrible job. So I got into this whole thing because I didn't want a job. And then I ended up giving myself like the worst job ever. Cause the thing about day trading, especially at that time, you know, there's no cell phones, no, I mean, cell phones existed, but no smartphones. So, you know, I'd be sitting at my computer. And you know the the pre markets would open at 8:30, and I'd be sitting in my in my seat from 8:30 until uh, four, and then if the if the post market was was active, then maybe a little bit longer. You know, afraid to go to the bathroom because you might miss something. It was just a total grind, and it was miserable. So, (laughs) so if you're thinking about doing that, thinking oh I can day trade Bitcoin, don't. Uh, (laughs) It's a bad idea. So that is, that is not official financial advice, but uh, it's just a recommendation of someone who's gone through it. So, you know, my, my, my trading career went through many stages of evolution, basically through long and painful experience. So what I started off doing was, you know, looking at the various, you know, asset groups in, in the stock market and I said, oh, penny stocks are the thing. So (laughs) this is just hilarious to me to when I look back on it, because of how wrong I was. But back in those days, so like I said, it was about two thousand three. There was what was called the OTCBB, which is the Over the Counter Bulletin Board Trading System, which was for companies that were not big enough to be listed on an exchange like the New York or the Nasdaq or the or the American or the Philadelphia or whatever. They were on the OTC market, which means that they were traded peer to peer. It was sort of like DeFi before DeFi was a thing. There were market makers who maintained a market in these different you know, these different issues, and then they would ex, you know trades would come in they w- they would match up you know buys and sells just like the just like the market makers on the Nasdaq do or the specialists on the NYSE used to do, and then you know if the stock price changed then you know you could make money. The thing that's so attractive about about these penny stocks and whether it be you know the same mechanics apply, whether it's penny stocks back then or it's you know microcap cryptos today. That the percentage gains can be enormous, and so that's really attractive to the newbie trader. Oh, you know I can make fifty percent, and you know if I do that over and over and over again. I'll I'll turn my one thousand dollars into you know a million. So, <laughs> so I tried my hand at that, and what was interesting there was I got a very very school of hard knocks kind of education there. So if you go to the NASDAQ or the NYSE and you put in an order and it's a valid order and the price hits that, 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 uh, price, you know, whatever your, whatever your order is, then they, the brokerage has to try to execute your, your order. And it turns out in the OTCBB world, that was not true. So a market maker could literally just sit on your order and, and not trade it just because, and I learned this <laughs> through this painful experience. And so you know, it was this weird cycle. I would I would make money Monday, make money Tuesday, make money Wednesday, you know, and then all these little these little profit kind of days. You know, and it might be 50 trades, but I'd end up making 400 bucks that day. Great, you know, if I can make 400 Monday, 400 Tuesday, 400 Wednesday, that's that's a decent you know income. But then Friday rolls around, and this didn't happen every Friday, but it's like you know once every once in a while, I would just get stuck in this trade and then lose everything. And then some, you know, everything that I built up and then more. So, you know, this, having small, small wins and then large losses was not a system that ended up working for me. So (laughs) after, I don't know, a few months of that, realizing that I was uh, fighting the system and that the system would win. I, you know, graduated in my trading career and I moved on to, to listed stocks, you know, I was trading. Well, Google wasn't a thing yet. I have another story about that. But you know, I trade AT&T or TJ, TJ Maxx or, you know, whatever was, was, was active that day. You know, typically at that point in the time, the biggest movers of the day were things that revolved around earnings reports. So, you know, I would stay up late or, or get in early and you know, I say, get in, you know, go from one bedroom to another bedroom in my house. And then, you know, I would check, check the earnings reports and, you know, if there's a positive surprise, you know, I would, I would you know, go along and, and play that whole game. Over the course of a year, I ended up with a net loss because, you know, I would have these small gains and then, you know, these blow up losses, which is kind of a typical pattern for a day trader. You know, you make those small wins and you think, you know, what you're doing. And, uh, then, you know, life comes around and, and, shows you otherwise. <laughs> so, so I ended up with a net loss at the end of the year and, you know, my broker statements showed that, you know, I lost whatever it was, you know, ten thousand, twenty thousand $20,000. Not including, you know, the money I had just taken out to live on during this time. So this hundred grand was going pretty fast. So I thought at the time that, oh, I lost money. I don't have to file taxes. That's uh, to my 22, 23 year old brain. That made sense. And I thought I had heard that somewhere and uh, turns out that's not true. <laughs> so this goes on, like I said, for two years. So two years, I don't file taxes the following year. I don't remember what had happened, but at this point, you know, so 2005, you know, I hired a file for a couple of years. I, I got a job. I ended up, I ended up working as a tutor for uh, kids in the high school, teaching them SATs, math, you know, basically everything except the foreign languages is, is what I ended up tutoring and about 50% that was SAT kind of prep. And of course, you know, I'm a w two employee now, so I get my w two, I was making barely barely enough to survive on. And so I think the first year I didn't file either. And because at this point I was afraid, you know, so, you know, I got this, I got my W two at the end of the year. I was like, well, I haven't filed taxes for you know three, four years, whatever it was. And now what happens if I file now? Does that trigger something? You know, I just didn't know, and I didn't know who to ask. So, you know, it was just kind of an inaction by, you know, paralysis kind of thing. So. <laughs> I start getting letters from the IRS. So letter number 1 says, oh, you know, you need to file, letter number 2 says you need to file, letter number 3, you know, this goes on for a little while. They then they start there starts being a number on these letters that I owe a million dollars. It was like 1.2 million something like that. And at that point I was just like laughing to myself because there's no way. There's no way I would owe any kind of any kind of anything uh, remotely related to that. And I and I saw that it was related to that trading that I did, you know, th- those years ago. And you know, I just continued to ignore it just through, through that, that fear, and that paralysis. So, you know, after a while in the IRS process, what happens is they start sending you certified letters, <laughs> So they have to sign for them with the mail and everything, so they know you got it. And so I got a couple of those, I still ignored it. And then they if you ignore those and they have determined that you do owe this money, then what happens is, and you have a paycheck. Then they start garnishing your wages. So this is what really got my attention. <laughs> so I remember I was, I went into work. I got a call from HR. The way this particular tutoring place was the, you know, they had different branches all over the place and, you know, there was a corporate central location. So I got a call from the, from the central location and they tell me, oh, you know, the IRS is calling us about you and you know, we have to garnish your paycheck. We're going to send you this thing you have to sign. And, uh, and so, so sign it basically. So (laughs) I remember I got, I got the thing, they printed it out and you know, I signed my acknowledgement, but on the acknowledgement, I said, this is not a valid, you know, a valid debt or a valid tax or something like that. So, but you know, sure enough, they started garnishing my paycheck and I wasn't making much to begin with at that point. So I was, I forget how much they were taking, but basically I was left with like $300 per pay period. So every two weeks. And that was not enough to pay my rent. It was not enough to uh, buy food and and all those kinds of costs of living sort of things. So that's when I really woke up and said, I got to do something about this. (laughs) And so that I met this person who happened to have a father who was a tax attorney. So I, I ended up talking to him and you know, we went through the whole thing and what happened Was that back in those days, uh, it's changed since then. So back in those days, the, when, when you sold a stock in in a, in a brokerage account, the brokerage would report the sale to the IRS and only the sale. So the IRS gets all these, all these 1099 B's, which is the statement of, of sale. And they would say, oh, you know, you sold this, you sold that, you sold that. And you know, the computers add them up and total sale is, you know, ended up being like $4 million during that year that I was day trading. And then the, so, you know, if you look at the tax on $4 million, it is a million dollars, it's, you know, one point, whatever it was. So that's where the IRS got their information. And so we go through the whole thing and I dig up my old brokerage accounts and, and find out that, oh, you know, sure enough, there is a net loss on the account. So I have to go back and I have to, you know, go years in the past and, and file returns. Because what happens in the IRS process is that if you don't file, for a few years, they do what's called an SFR and that's a substitute for return. And so what they do is they take the information that they have from third parties, whether it's, you know, w twos from your employers, 1099s and all the different versions of 1099s, you know, there's 1099 miscellaneous. There's a new one this year called 1099, NEC, INTs, DIVs, 1099 Bs, 1099 S. So these are all statements of, of information provided by third parties saying this particular kind of tr- transaction happened regarding this taxpayer 1099 K is another one there's also the 1098s which is your like your mortgage interest would be a 1098 and then the, the IRS collects all the data that they can and they create a substitute return and of course it's the worst possible way you could you could file a tax return and uh, you know no deductions no anything and then the they assess you know whatever the tax would be on their version so they went ahead and did this and and then the you know, they came up with a number and it spits out. And if it's a, if it's a positive number in that you owe tax, you start getting these letters and you start going into the process. So what ended up happening was, you know, I went through this whole chain of events and because the original return was never filed, I was actually able to address the issue by filing and, and just filing the right way to begin with. So we went ahead and did that and sure enough, you know, the Iris agreed that yes, I had $4 million in sales, but I had like $4.1 million of, of purchases. So it ended up being a net loss of about, you know, whatever it was. I think it was like 30 K that first year and maybe maybe another 20 the next year something like that. So when that percolates through their computer systems, the whole issue just disappears. And that's what ended up happening. So, you know, I had, I had this million dollar debt with the IRS uh, they were taking my money, the money I, <laughs> the money they took from my paycheck and never got back because the, there's a statute of limitations on, on refunds, which is that uh, I think they kind of did me dirty here, but <laughs> that you have three years to claim a refund and the IRS has, has 10 years to go after you. So, you know, I guess who writes the rules, you know? So you can file, you know, further than three years back, but, but if it's beyond that and you're owed a refund, then it's just, sorry, Charlie, you'll get a little letter in the mail saying, oh, you know, we have, we have processed your, your claim for a refund, but because it's past statute limitations, you do go pound sand, <laughs> so <laughs> I got, I got one of those for, for the amounts that I had already paid towards this, uh, so that is something to keep in mind if you haven't filed. So we're in 2021, which means three years ago was 2017 or no 2018 rather. And in 2018, we were filing 2017 taxes. So the, so the window in 2017 is coming to a close here in just a month or two uh, or three months, I guess at this point. So I ended up clearing, clearing the whole issue. A million dollars just poof disappears. And I was able to continue my life. And obviously since then I've gotten uh, into what they call compliance and I have kept my filings up to date. So, you know, burying your head in the sand, like I did, Is the exact wrong thing to do because really what the IRS is trying to do, and you can debate the merits of whether the tax laws are fair or whatever, but what they are trying to do, the, the people who work in the offices there, they're trying to get people to file and get people to file, you know, accurately. So as long as you're doing that, you know, they're okay. If you are not filing, or if you're doing fraudulent filings and other things like that, then, then there's problems. But you know, if you owe tax, if you get tax refunds, they don't really care. It's just file. And file accurately. I have a lot of clients who who ask me, it's like, oh, you know, I'm getting a twenty thousand dollar refund. Is that a red flag? I was like, no, it's not a red flag. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just uh, it's just a number as far as that as far as they're concerned, it's, and it's backed up by by everything that that has gone on throughout the year. Tax shenanigans with Neil. So yeah, so that was my own shenanigan, and and I fortunately ended up meeting the right person. Like I said, this tax attorney that I studied under for years and years. And he ended up bringing me in to the business and I learned the, the tax business basically at, at his side, he was an old wall street guy, which was interesting. So if you've ever had a 60, 40, long-term versus short-term capital gain on, on index options, he was part of that whole creation because they used to handle the, the specialists on the New York stock exchange in in their firm, so that's the story for another day. But that's my story. And since then I've been, I've been in the tax world and like I said, it's, you know, gone through 50,000 tax returns at this point. And I've seen, I've seen a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of, you know, things people bring in with that are just craziness, a, a story on another show that we'll do is the time that this couple comes in and their brother had actually caused them to file a fraudulent tax return and the whole, the whole back and forth with that. That was a crazy one, but, but that's my story. And so, you know, hopefully that gives you some insight. You know, when people come in to me, well, they don't come in anymore. You know, we closed the office. My office was in Boca Raton, but now I'm I'm at in my basement here in Atlanta doing everything virtual because of the COVID. So people would come in and say, yo, you know, you know, the IRS says I owe $15,000, what am I going to do? And I understand that kind of stress because I was there, you know, I and my member was way bigger. So I tell these people, it's like, if it makes you feel any better, I owed the IRS a billion dollars and we got it all sorted out. So, and usually that does make them feel better because you know, having, having that frame of reference makes, puts their stuff in perspective. Now don't get me wrong. 50 grand, 15 grand is a lot of money. And you know, you certainly don't want to pay that if you don't have to. But, but the point is, is that the process works, you know, the, the filing system that the IRS has, it can be very slow. It can be very tedious and it can be kind of painful, but it does end up working. And you know, in the, in the rare, rare search situa- situations where it does not then you have organizations like the taxpayer advocate service, which is uh, which is your supposed to be your voice with the IRS. So we'll get into that another time, I suppose. But at this point I wanted to change gears just a well, entirely. <laughs> and, and then I had a special request. Rollin sent me uh, a, a message for, for the, the first show to, to get into some of the Biden tax stuff, and I wanted to do that as, as the first part of our Q and a, so what I'm going to do here is just pivot a bit and talk about the things that Biden is is suggesting as far as his, his plans for tax changes, because right now it's January 18th, 2021, Biden's going to be sworn in in two days and he has promised, you know, this, that, and the other when it comes to taxes. Now, obviously uh, the way the tax code works is that the, the Congress creates a tax law. The IRS implements the tax law. So Congress has to create a bill and it has to be passed by both houses. It then has to be signed by the president or you know you have the whole veto override kind of thing. And then it goes to the IRS the IRS is responsible for implementing whatever changes that they come up with. That's not a short process. So so for 2021 and 2022 the Democrats control the the house and the senate and the presidency. So it is likely that whatever large changes that are going to occur are going to, going to occur in that window, probably sooner rather than later. And Then the hey (laughs) Krim, you missed half the show. Oh, that's okay. Uh, You can catch the replay. So so the the Congress has to be convened for 2021. They have to pass a bill, and then it has to go to the Senate and all that kind of stuff. So historically, what has happened is that most bills, most tax bills like this, they go through and they get passed, and then they start to apply to the following year. There have been a few circumstances where (laughs) I'll have to tell my life story intro again, it's on the recording. So there have been a few circumstances where the, the current Congress has, has passed a new tax bill and has applied it to the current year. So that is something to be aware of. It's unlikely, but it could happen. So, with all these changes that we're going to be talking about here in a second, just keep that in the back of your mind. So I have an old, well, old, it's like four months old, (laughs) rotation deck on, on how Trump versus Biden plans different. So I'm going to be grabbing some of these screenshots and I'll drop them into the, into the chat here. So if the stream were working you know, perfectly, then you'd be able to watch follow along, but I'll just do a cut and paste kind of thing here. So individual income tax rates. And so here's Biden versus Trump. Now Trump's side doesn't really matter anymore. So we'll just focus on the Biden stuff. So Biden's proposing increasing the top rate back to 39.6% where it sat prior to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. So Tax Cut and Jobs Act, or TICJA, is the Trump tax reform that was passed at the end of 2017. So there was a case where the vast majority of provisions in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act applied to the following year, 2018. There were a couple a th- couple little nuances that did apply to 2017. So, you know, that was partially retroactive. Capital gains and dividends. So capital gains and dividends is, this is a big one. Biden's proposal would increase the top marginal income tax rate on long-term capital gains to 39.6% for taxpayers earning more than $1 million annually. So what does that mean? (laughs) What that means is so when you sell some kind of property or security, like crypto or uh, a stock or a piece of real estate or whatever, it's a capital gains event, meaning that it has its own separate taxation. So a long-term capital gain means that you held that piece of property for at least a year. So again, you could have, could have been a stock, could have been some, some Bitcoin could have been uh, a piece of real estate. And if it's over a year, it gets, it gets lower taxes. So the amount of tax would depend on how much total income you have that year. But under, under the current system, it's either going to be 0%, 15% or 20%. Now, on top of that, there may be an additional 3.8% tax, which is the, which is one of the Obamacare taxes. So if it's a, if it's a large sale and your total income that year is, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, you're you're looking at a combined everything of basically 24%. So you sell, let's say you sell a piece of real estate for a million dollars. And you know, it's, it's a gain of a million dollars and you'd be paying 24% of that to the federal government and then your states, you know, whatever the state rate would be, which varies from zero all the way up to like 13. So what he's saying that is that if, if your total income that year is a million dollars or more, you lose the lower tax rate entirely. And that whole gain gets taxed at your top rate, which in this case is going to be 39.6 because of the previous provision and, and that's it basically. So, so if you're selling a business or you're, you're selling something that is appreciated a lot, then, you know. And you go over that million dollar threshold, then all of a sudden you go from 24% to basically 40%. And when you add on the States on top of that, if you're in California or New York, or any of these high tax States, you're talking about 50% plus because of the, the total amount of tax there. So, you know, that is a, a huge disincentive to, to sell things. And you know, if you're selling stock or, or if you're selling crypto or, or something like that, then you can actually, you can have a good deal of control because you can decide how much to sell, you know, you can sell, you know, just under the threshold and, and you'll be okay. Assuming that this ends up this bill that they will, I'm sure it'll pass something ends up being what Biden's proposing here. But on the other hand, if you're selling, let's say a business that you have, then you can't, well, I mean, you can, but it's, it's really difficult to sell just a small part or a fractional part. It's pr- usually an all or nothing kind of deal. So I have a lot of clients in the online business world where, you know, they own websites uh, It could be an e-commerce site. It could be a content site. It could be an Amazon FBA business. And you know, typically those sell for three times, three to four times their annual income. So if a, if a business is making, you know, $500,000 a year, it could sell for 1.5 to 2 million, something like that, uh, depending on you know the particulars. So all of a sudden now. You know, because the multiple is you know three, maybe four. It's like, am I going to sell for, let's say, let's say it's making 500. I sell for 1.5. Now I've got to pay half of it to the government in tax because I, there's no preferential treatment for capital gains. I'm left with 750 versus the 500 I was making. Is that really worth it? That's you know, it's it's hard to make that argument. And there are tax planning things you can do to do that, but basically they all revolve around you not getting the money for or lifestyle, you can set it aside and keep it in a, in a tax favored place. But you know, that means, you know, you're, you're just not enjoying the fruits of your labor, at least for a long time. So that is uh that is a huge disincentive to any kind of, any kind of business M and a kind of activity. And I think that's, that's going to be felt by the small entrepreneurs, which is basically my people. <laughs> You know the the vast majority of my clients are are small business people, and whether it's you know they have their own insurance practice, or you know they're real estate agents, or or the online business owners, you know they're they are the ones who will be hit the most by this kind of thing. Now the other capital gains provision that they're talking about, or that Biden's proposed, is eliminating the step up in basis, Uh, and so this this is this is a huge one, and this is this is a middle class tax increase, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Because what the step up and basis is, is when you inherit property from someone who passes away your tax basis for eventual capital gains calculations is whatever the the market value is on the day you receive it. So that, and that's called the step up. So let's say, you know, grandma has a house. She bought it for $5,000 back in 1962. And you know, she's, she passes away and leaves it to, you know, an heir. you know, uh, usually a child or, you know, a group of children or grandchildren or whatever it is. And so she paid $5,000 for it. Now it's worth, let's say $400,000 just because the market has evolved, you know, in those 50 years. And so a lot of times what happens is that, you know, the, the inheritor will, will turn around and sell that piece of property. Cause you know, they're not living there anymore and it's, it's a, it's a valuable asset. So now they sell it for $400,000 and you know, they, they effectively bought it for tax purposes. For four hundred thousand dollars, there's zero gain, and you know you just go on your merry way. This is a this is a generational transfer of wealth, and this is a big part of how that transfer of wealth happens between generations in the middle class. Uh, a lot of people on the lower end of the economic spectrum don't own uh, property like this, and on the higher end, you know it, it may happen, but it's not as significant because it's just a smaller percentage of the estate. So this is this is a very relevant issue for that, for that middle group where the house value is a significant chunk of the net worth. So he's, so what they're saying here is they're going to get rid of that. So if, if grandma bought it for $5,000 and you inherit it, you bought it for $5,000. So now you're selling it for 400. Let's say maybe you're in that, maybe that kicks you up into that higher bracket, you know, where you pay 50% or, you know, 44% plus state. You know, into of that, of that sale, maybe you're below that threshold and you're only, you're only quote unquote, only paying, you know, 24% plus state tax. But this is, this is a big deal. And I don't see anybody talking about this. <laughs> the IRS invented time machines. Well, this is, this is Biden's proposal. So, you know, it's uh, people like to, people like to blame the IRS and the IRS has a lot of stuff that's blameworthy, but, but the law is set by Congress. So, you know, when, when people come to me. We had a great situation for, for, I think it was two years. We had, we had the congressman actually had his, his local office, just down the hall from our office. And so people say, you know, why is this this way? I was like, well, talk to your congressman, I, you know, he's down the hall. <laughs> now he was never there. I think I saw him once, but you know, his staff was there. And so we just sent him over. He ended up moving his office across the street. I do not know if it was because of me saying this kind of stuff, but, but it was, I like to pretend that it was. But, but yeah, so, you know, it's, it's Congress you need to complain to. And then like I said, the implementation is the IRS. So you got to place the blame where it is, where it is. So, so that's, but those are the two major capital gains, so, you know, applies to dividends as well, but that's less of a thing. The next, <laughs> the IRS needs to implement tax time machines. That's right. The next issue is the payroll tax. So if you have your own small business and you're paying payroll, you may have noticed that the, you could have taking a discount on your social security taxes. So this is, we'll get into this just a little bit in that in when somebody gets is paid a payroll from an employer, the, you know, there's the, there's the actual wage portion and the employee pays the seven point, uh, what is it? 7.65% in social security and Medicare tax on that. The employer also pays the same amount in social security and Medicare tax. And together that adds up to 15.3%. And then also there's, you know, whatever withholdings that the, that the employee has on their income tax, but we're just talking about social security, Medicare tax here. So under the current system, if you make above $137,000 in pay in wage in w two income, then your social security tax stops. And similarly on the employer side, it stops. So that's, that's actually a big discount. It's the majority of that 15.3% is a social security tax. So on top of that, because of the COVID crisis, Trump passed this, this little deal here where employers had the option to defer paying the social security portion of that tax and they would have to pay it, you know, in half by the end of twenty one twenty twenty one 2021 and half by the end of 2022. But it was a nice little float of basically a loan, uh, a stealth loan from the government to employers and a lot of, a lot of employers uh, took advantage of that. So during the election, Trump was, was, was saying that, well, if he gets reelected instead of a loan, we're just going to you know forgive it. And you won't have to ever pay it back. Biden is, is saying, no, no, no. So that is, that is an issue that is going to potentially affect current employers on top of that employer and employee. Biden is talking about getting rid of the, the cap on social security. Once you have income above $400,000. So this is a very weird proposal, because let's say you make, you know, your wage is $300,000 and you have investment income and whatever else, and you end up with $399,000. So now you only pay social security tax on 137,000, same with your employer. And what this is saying is that once you go above the 400,000, now, all of a sudden you owe social security tax on that difference and your employer does too. So it's it's it creates a very weird dynamic in that there's this gatekeeping threshold between one hundred and thirty-seven and four hundred. You know, you would think that if they are going to get rid of it, they're just going to get rid of it, and I think that's what they will end up doing. In fact, I wrote an article on this a couple like a year or two ago, and I'll see if I can dig up the link. And basically, if they get rid of the cap entirely, then they can extend the lifetime of Social Security by you know basically two years. Just based on the statistics at that time. So I think that is much more likely of of what's going to happen. They'll just, they'll just remove the cap entirely and forget this 137,400 stuff. Just go to just go to, you know, pay as you go over the whole thing and corporate tax rates. So part of the tax cut and jobs act was that the corporate rates were lowered down to 21% for C corporations. So C corporation is a company that pays its own taxes. So any kind of publicly traded company, it has revenue. It has expenses. It has a profit at the bottom. It pays a percentage of that profit in tax under the tax cut jobs act, which is current policy. It's 21%. And then if it pays a dividend, then the, that dividend money gets taxed at the individual level as, as part of your dividend taxes. So that's, that's, if you've ever heard the phrase double taxation, that's what they're talking about. That money was paid tax at the corporate level. And then it's paid tax again at the, at the individual level as, as a dividend tax. What he's talking about here is that 21% is going to raise to 28%. And additionally, Biden proposes a minimum tax on corporations with book profits of hundred million dollars or more Uh, book profits versus account versus tax profits, uh, you know, that gets into some depreciation and credits and that kind of thing not terribly relevant for, for our discussion right here, but you know, it's just one of those things. So 21% to 28%, you might say a 7% increase. You might also say it's a 33% increase because it's whether you're looking at the absolute scale or the relative scale, but either way it's, it's a big increase. And so the 21% rate plus the dividend rate came out to 36% ish which was pretty close to the 35% of, uh, you know, high income people anyway. So the 21% was picked as a pretty neutral level for C corporation profits. And, you know, by raising that now you are going back to the system that we used to have, where having C corporations was really disadvantaged, uh, by, you know, 7% and then uh, qualified business income deduction. So this was a new thing that was created in, in the tax cut and jobs act. Where if you have a pass through like an LLC or or an S corp or something like that, then you got a break on the taxable income, which was called the qualified business income deduction or QBI. So that, that whole thing is, is a nice little bonus for people who own their own businesses or, or who get K ones from things. And Biden's talking about getting rid of that for again, above this $400,000 level. So uh, a bunch of other differences. One thing that I just want to hit on real quick before we run out of time here is the child tax credits. Why my copy and paste is not working? Let's see, there we go. So child tax cred- credits for repatri- repatriation of profits, energy tax incentives, all this kind of stuff. So all all have differences, and you know we'll see what ends up passing. But the child tax credit was specifically hit on uh, in Biden's speech the other night of his $1.9 trillion proposal here that he plans to submit to Congress, you know, right away where, so under the current law, if you have a child under 17, you get a scaredy cat says, okay, just make sure I don't have a business that makes 400 K less than digested. It depends on what's actually passed. These are proposals at the moment. So, but these are just the things to be aware of. So under the, under tax cut and jobs act, a kid under 17 is worth up to $2,000 in tax credits. And part of that's refundable part of that's not refundable, but, 2,000 bucks, Biden is, is saying they are going to raise that to $3,000 and children under six will be up to 3,600. So that is a big increase. And the tax cut and jobs act was already a big increase on the tax credits. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, if you're on the, if you are in the range of income where you get these tax credits for children, which is a pretty wide range, then each kid is, is going to be, you know, nice, nice chunk of money. So, you know, I've got two kids, one is four, one is six right now. So under this plan, I would get well for, for, the following year, there would be five and seven, so I would get, 60, $600 in tax credits for them. And you know, we'll see how much ends up being cash back versus just deduction of taxes, but still nice, nice chunk of change. And uh, you know, they're also talking about, you know, grants to uh, childcare centers and, and those kind of things to help with the, with the COVID stuff. So lots of, lots of money being thrown around here. And just a quick little summary graph that was prepared by Deutsche Bank, actually, who's been in the news for other reasons lately. And they're saying that under Biden's plan, then your after-tax income change will be this graph. Basically, you'll get more money in the lowest half of the of the taxpayer brackets. And then the in the upper 20%, especially the upper 10%, Then you will end up being, you'll end up losing money and the top 0.1%, they said will lose like 22% or something like that of, of actual after-tax income. So that is a big chunk to those, to those top 0.1 percenters. But to get to that level, you're talking about, you know, huge numbers. So the vast, vast majority of people will, according to Deutsche Bank will come out okay, or possibly slightly hurt. But you know, we'll see what, like I said, what, what ends up actually passing, As, as a bill and how the IRS ends up implementing that stuff. We will all be there by 2022. (laughs) I appreciate the optimism, Roland. We will all be in that 0.1% group because the crypto is going to the moon, you know, (laughs) after Bitcoin hits 400 K in December, you know, could be, could be, I don't know. But that is, I know we went a little bit long there, but that is an expanded section or first segment of the show, which is the stories and, and news kind of stuff. We're going to keep following up with Biden's plan as it evolves, you know, as he gets sworn in and as they, as things start to go through the house. But you know, that's, that's the, that's the proposal that they have right now. So we have looks like seven minutes left and now is the time for the Q and a. So if anybody has anything that they want to talk about, you know, feel free to drop it in the chat again. I don't want anything that's like too personal because obviously this is a public thing. And the Roland says, sounds like you enjoy what you do. And I I do, I I love doing taxes. So uh, a large part of my, of my background that I didn't get into yet is the, is, you know, my, my philosophy of, of life really. So I get a huge rush out of keeping money away from the government. (laughs) And that's, that's in two parts. So part number one is just that much less money going to the government. So like me personally. By, you know, with proper tax planning and, and implementing structures and, and all this kind of stuff, I probably keep, I don't know, $20 million, something like that away from the government each year. And then the, <laughs> and then the other side is, you know, I like helping people, you know, my whole life has been, you know, one version of that or another, you know, like when I was tutoring, I loved that because I was helping these kids, you know, get into the colleges that they wanted. I liked them helping to learn new things. And I, I love helping, you know, business owners, especially. Everybody, but particularly the business owner, you know, keep more of their money and make it work for them, make their lives better and all that kind of stuff. And we're not saying only five minutes for Q and a yes, only five minutes this time because we went a bit long on there. Crimson says it's nerdy, but I love it. We, we appreciate everybody who's who's in, in the chat and everybody who's gonna watch this later. I hope you join in the chat on future shows. It's gonna be Mondays, 3 PM Eastern. So that's the time to, to get it, get in there. And says your slogan should be helping create generational wealth. I like that. That's pretty good. And so yeah, Krim is a Canadian. She loves listening to us tax code shows. So yeah, I am, I'm a us tax person. So, you know, it's uh, systems are similar around the world, but specifics are de- uh, specifics vary. So, you know, you have to keep that in mind, but, but yeah, so if anybody has, has any questions they want to hit real quick, otherwise I have some people who wrote in ahead of time, that hit up some of my, some of my mastermind groups so we did some we did some Biden tax changes and so here is here's a good one debit card refunds stimulus payments so debit card refunds in us tax you can get your refund a couple of different ways you can get a check in the mail you can get a direct deposit to your uh, bank account there are some in, there are various intermediaries that can kind of tweak this a bit where like they get the direct deposit and then they front you a loan got a refund, refund, anticipation loan, or they can give you a debit card or, or whatever drawn on their, their balance of your refund. But the other way is you can get a debit card straight from the IRS. And this is craziness, craziness, because this, like when you, when you find people or you see news stories, they try out a few every year where it's like, oh, you know, we've, we found this tax scammer who stole all these people's identities and you know, found like 200 tax returns, you know, in their home. That's because of the debit cards. (laughs) So the debit cards, you know, if you get a debit card in the mail, that's it. That money is spendable, right? There's no tracking. There's no nothing on those. So these scammers, they steal people's identities. And I was in, like I said, I was in South Florida. I was in Boca Raton for years and years and years. And South Florida's number one in the country for identity theft. Because of the medical offices that are around there. And then these scammers would file fake tax returns and they would get some crazy refund, you know? And they would get them as these debit cards, because once the debit card is issued it's gone, you know, they can, they can sell the debit card. They can just go to another common element of this game was they would go to Publix, a grocery store and they were, they would actually buy other gift cards or, or, you know, money orders or things like that. And so, so this is a major source of the fraud that the, that is perpetrated by on the IRS, but the IRS keeps doing it. And with the stimulus payments, they, they came out with a post or a press release a couple days ago saying that, you know, some people are getting direct deposit. I already got mine direct deposit. Some people get checks, but some people will get these debit cards and you got to know that a good portion of that stimulus money is just going right out the window to these scammers. So this is infuriating to me and it's been going on for years and years. And, and you know, like I said, every, every tax season, there's a new story or two oh, we caught this ring of scammers and they had so many So many, you know, tax fraud and and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, but so, okay. They caught this ring that had like 200, 500, whatever the IRS spends billions, billions every year on, on, on tax fraud scams through identity theft. And they, oh, that, you know, they recouped, you know, a million. Okay. Congratulations. But you're not really making a, a serious dent in the problem. So that is, that was. The <laughs> stimulus scam, some kind of scam inception. And scaredy cat says, get that debit card so they can load your unemployment money, food stamp money, anything else you can qualify for and don't get scammed. Yep. Miami is the financial fraud capital of the U S which is true. Go down to Kaya Ocho and see all the stuff that's going on there. Oh man. But I guess that is the end of the first show here. We've got five seconds left. So I want to thank everybody for, for coming in and we'll be back here every week. And it will do more of the same.